This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today in Episode 9, we cross the border up to Saskatchewan, Canada, where they've been successfully growing more pulses than the U.S. for many years. First, we'll visit with Dale Rasula, who is the Provincial Specialist for Pulse Crops and Other Specialty Crops with the Ministry of Agriculture. Then we'll talk foliar diseases with Dr. Sabina Bonitza, Professor of Plant Pathology at the Crop Development Center at the University of Saskatchewan. If you're new to Pulse Crops, they include crops such as field peas, chickpeas, and lentils. The show follows some Pulse Crop farmers through the growing season and dives into the research that's helping them through some of the challenges they face. We'll also talk to a number of industry stakeholders along the way. We begin today's episode with Dale Rizula. As I said, he's the Provincial Specialist for Pulse Crops and Other Specialty Crops with the Ministry of Agriculture based in Saskatchewan. Dale's going to set the scene for us on pulses in Saskatchewan, recent issues they've been running into, and the importance of the breeding program to the future success of the crop category. He starts, though, by answering my question about where Saskatchewan ranks relative to other provinces when it comes to pulse production. Generally, if you compare the four pulses, dry beans, chickpeas, lentils, and field peas, Saskatchewan is probably the largest. You know, we trade off with Alberta on occasion with respect to who has more seeded area, but lentils have been almost exclusive to Saskatchewan. Probably 90% of the productions occurred here. Field pea, on average, has been 55 or 60% produced in Saskatchewan. Chickpeas are almost, uh, almost 100% mostly produced here in Saskatchewan. Faba bean, between us and Alberta, it varies as to who's got the most. This year, it's hard to say right now, but last year, I should say, I think Saskatchewan's seeded area was slightly above Alberta's. And dry bean production, um, most of that actually goes on in Manitoba and Ontario, where uh, a lot more dry bean is produced in those provinces. Some is also produced in Alberta. And uh, very little in Saskatchewan because it's pretty much exclusively grown under irrigation. So it's all found near the irrigation point in the center part of the province where we have our main in- infrastructure in place for irrigation around what's called the Lake Diefenbaker. Now, just because they are a world leader in pulse production doesn't mean they don't have challenging years. Last year, for example, was a difficult one. Last year was quite a problem year where it was quite dry in the spring to begin with. So that was an issue because uh, growers were forced to seed into really dry conditions and hope for some rain thereafter. And it didn't kind of come around until for um, almost a month before it started showing up. And then all of a sudden, uh, later in the growing season, it started to rain. It wouldn't shut off. So (laughs) it was kind of all backwards. It was quite an issue, and uh, that caused a lot of problems. So, you know, the crops were kind of spotty, and in addition to that, they were delayed, and many of them weren't even able to be harvested until the following year, so this spring. So there there was a lot of uh, that sort of thing going on, and growers had to deal with that. Uh, This year, it's a little bit better. The soil moisture conditions have been more suitable proceeding into and seeing things emerge, which is happening pretty good uh, right now. We've recently had a lot of really high wind in Saskatchewan, and I'm not sure if they've had that in Montana and 
North Dakota too. I assume that they probably did, but this wind has been kind of a drying wind. So we can certainly use some more precipitation fairly soon, I think, because that's going to dry things down fairly quick, I would think. Now, I should tell you that this interview with Dale happened on the 20th of May, 2020. So his comments about conditions would be relative to what things look like at that date. He mentioned, though, getting out into the field to harvest this spring what couldn't be harvested last fall. Now, I knew this happened with crops like corn, but I wondered how the quality held up with pulses under these types of conditions. Yeah, you know, I'm sure you're correct that the quality probably took a bit of a hit, you know, in terms of how good it is. So much of that harvested material may have been, um, I guess, directed to different markets, as you're probably aware. Pulses can be used for feed as well, particularly dry peas. They can be used for feed. Chickpeas are also used quite extensively in the pet food market, so they can be used there. So there are other markets available for them. Fabla beans, a large part of the fabla beans that are grown in Saskatchewan are of the feed type. And so many of those can also be used for feed purposes rather than for food. So, you know, in that respect, I think that they were able to salvage them at a reduced price, obviously, because generally speaking, food uh, values are higher than feed values. So it'd be a reduced price, but nevertheless, it had to be picked up and harvested. In Dale's capacity, he doesn't perform the research himself, but he works closely with researchers, breeders, and growers. People like Dr. Sabina Benitza, that you'll hear from in just a few minutes here. And when asked what issues are most important on his plate right now, the first one he mentions won't surprise regular listeners to this show. It's crop rotation. Right now, I think our big push is to look at some rotation aspects of crop production in general, which not only affects pulses, but affects cereals and oil seeds, because there are a lot of problems associated with growing one crop too often. You know, there's different problems that affect the canola and they're dealing with similar issues and same sort of thing with wheat. So, you know, if you grow any one particular crop too frequently, then the pathogens tend to build up and that's when they become a problem. So having a good rotation in place and keeping to it is something that can help alleviate that problem. And of course, the other side of that issue is the economics. In order for a grower to remain viable, they've got to make money at what they do. They can't just grow anything unless it's going to make them money. So, you know, those three big ones have been the mainstay of their income. And to say suddenly to them, you can't grow that for six years or eight years. Uh, so what do you grow? <laughs> so it, that's a major problem that I think not only are we facing here in Saskatchewan and Canada, but I think that a lot of different areas are facing that same sort of issue. I, I'm sure that there's similar sorts of problems uh, that they're facing in North Dakota and Montana too, where growing any one crop for too many years in a row uh, too frequently is just going to be a problem. This is definitely a problem, as you've heard several times on this podcast so far. But what's the answer? Well, Dale thinks breeding will help quite a bit to allow for more variety in crop options for farmers around the province. Well, uh, I guess if you can develop some crops that fit into these areas of adaptation a little bit better, then you, you could introduce some other crops. Like, for example, if we could widen out the area that can grow chickpea, then 
people could grow chickpeas rather than the lentil and pea in those areas too, because chickpea seems to have some resistance to aphanomyces. Same thing with faba bean. So if we can widen out those areas of adaptation, then uh, that could help alleviate some of that pressure. Another one that we're hoping to do some work on here is probably the largest pulse market in the world. It is the largest in the world. That's the dry bean. Uh, you know, so pinto beans, black beans, yellow beans, those kind of beans. Uh, they're actually the largest pulse market consumed in the world. And we think we can do a lot more with those, even outside of irrigation, where uh, we're hoping to look at ways to start sowing them in dry land situations. We've done that before, but I don't think the varieties were well suited for that in our climate. So that's the way it went to irrigation. But Manitoba has done quite well with it and started seeding them in solid seeding systems rather than row cropping and doing fairly well. Dry beans are a bit of a touchy one because the seed coat tends to be quite sensitive and easily cracked. So they have to be really handled with a lot of care and gentleness. Uh, So the equipment's got to be modified, I think, a bit to deal with that. But you know, it's being done. It's probably going to be something that catches on slower, but um, that's maybe one way of dealing with this whole crop rotation thing. Also working closely with plant breeders at the University of Saskatchewan is Dr. Sabina Benitza, a professor of plant pathology in the university's Crop Development Center. She's been working specifically with pulses in this capacity for 22 years. The work of her and her colleagues has been instrumental in getting the pulse crops industry flourishing in Saskatchewan. Much of that work has been on foliar diseases, and I asked her to start us off by giving us sort of a high-level overview of the most prevalent foliar diseases on pulses in the province. So in in all of these pulse crops except for field bean, dry bean, the Ascochida blights are a big group of pathogens. Now every crop has their own Ascochida pathogen, so it's not as if it's all one beast, and there is quite a bit of difference in in how they behave. So you have to be aware of that. In lentil, then maybe nowadays the most important foliar pathogen is um, the anthracnose pathogen. In faba bean, the most important pathogen is probably the chocolate spot pathogen, although there is a little bit of ascochida blight as well and maybe some other diseases. And in dry bean, it tends to be more bacterial blights. And then there is an anthracnose pathogen as well, which is different from the one in lentil that, that it seems to be showing up a little bit more now as well. So these are probably sort of the major pathogens. And then there are others that either show up um, sporadically when we have very specific conditions. So for example, if we have a lot of Late season precipitation, then we see a fair bit of botrytis, gray mold, and sclerotinia. They can infect all of these crops, but sort of these are the, the really the big issues. We have touched briefly on Ascochida in other episodes, but I don't think anthracnose has come up. Sabina said it's probably the most important foliar pathogen in lentils, so I asked her if she could tell us more about it. Anthracnose is fairly specific to lentil. It can sometimes infect pea as well, a little bit, but it doesn't really cause epidemics there. Um, sort of for 
an untrained eye, it's probably not easy to differentiate between an, an anthracnose lesion and um, an ascochidal lesion. But I mean, really, for the purpose of um, disease management, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you would deal with them the same way. So what you typically see are sort of tiny spots starting on your leaves that sort of slowly enlarge. And sometimes you have a darker border, sometimes you don't. And it's only really the specialist who will be able to say, okay, this is an anthracnose lesion based on very specific structures that the fungus forms in these lesions. Now with anthracnose specifically, what we often see is um, then leaf drop. And that is the most dangerous part, really see lesions on the stems developing and they can enlarge and then sort of girdle the stem. And so that then can result that the upper part of the plant basically dies because there's just no transport of water to the upper part of the plants anymore. And then sort of when you look at the field scale, you sort of see these brown patches slowly developing that extend and become larger as the pathogen then spreads to neighboring plants. So what can farmers do to get ahead of this before that pathogen has a chance to spread? When should they be on the lookout for it and what should they be looking for? So, I mean, we recommend that farmers really sort of pay attention to what is happening in their crops right from the seedling stage onwards so that they really see whether something is happening early on. For example, here in some areas of Saskatchewan, we, we have had a lot of rain lately, right? So the conditions were right for seedlings to get infected. And the earlier you have an infection, the higher the risk that you see a major epidemic because you just have so much more time for things to develop. Um, what is important is to understand that uh, all of these diseases sort of start from the ground level up. The fungus sort of survives in trash in the soil. And so you really have to walk into the crop and have a closer look. And then, I mean, the best potential for fungicide to be really efficacious is as long as you have very good penetration into the canopy. So just from um, growth habit of these plants, probably your best time of application is the eight to nine node stage when you sort of still have a nicely open canopy and then sort of can go and spray, and the spray gets all the way down um, to the, the bottom of the plants. But as I said, I mean, it, it depends on whether, whether conditions are conducive for infection. I mean, there is no point in just spraying because it's the eight to nine node stage, but the weather will prevent any infection, right? You're wasting your fungicide application. The later in the season you go, the more difficult fungicide applications become just because the canopy becomes denser and just sort of penetrating into this dense canopy then becomes an issue. This point actually sounded a little counterintuitive to me. I mean, I think if you're going to treat with a fungicide, you would want to cover as much of the canopy as possible. But actually, Sabina says this big canopy is actually shielding the plant from where that pathogen is actually coming from. Well, if you sort of think about what a, a canopy looks like of a lentil crop, sort of if you go right at the bottom where the disease starts, there is sort of a fair amount of space still. And the higher you go up in the canopy, the denser it becomes in terms of leaves, right? So it's sort of like an umbrella in the end where, okay, a lot of the fungicide or the droplets will stay, penetrate just maybe in the top 30% of the canopy, but will not get any deeper. But in that deeper layers, that's where the, the disease is slowly moving upwards, and it can do so because there isn't 
any fungicide on those leaflets. And unfortunately, I mean, the, the sort of the, the years where we see very severe epidemics are the years where we have a lot of moisture. And in particular in lentil, that's where we also see a lot of biomass developing. The lentils can get quite high and really dense. I mean, sometimes the lentil canopy is like a thick mat of biomass. And then if you move later into the season, maybe the plants even lodge and then you have a really thick mass of leaves there um, where penetration is, and any air movement that could dry off leaves is not happening anymore, right? And these are the ideal conditions for fungi to then thrive and spread very quickly. But what about the decision to treat or not to treat in the first place? One of the challenges of these diseases is that we simply can't count and determine a threshold like we would maybe for an insect pest or a weed. I think it's maybe a little bit more complicated with, with these diseases. And I think that is reflected in the attitude of many farmers and towards diseases. I, I think they feel much more comfortable making a call on, okay, have I, do I have to intervene when it comes to weeds or insects? Because you can count it, right? With the diseases, it's sort of a little bit more wishy-washy. And so if you ask people like me, the answer is always a little bit more wishy-washy. I mean, if you see a lesion in your field, it doesn't automatically mean, well, I have to go out now and spray. Because if it is dry, I mean, all of these diseases are promoted by rain. And the major diseases we have on these pulse crops are really need the rain drops to spread them. They don't produce spores, which are the structures that spread the disease, that fly around. They need water droplets to splash them around, right? So that's why I'm saying it very much depends on the conditions. So if you see some lesions in your field and you look at the weather forecast and your weather forecast is more reliable than in Saskatchewan <laughs> and uh, it forecasts, okay, we will have rain in two days or three days and it will be rainy for five days or showery then maybe you want to sort of think about, okay, maybe I should sort of look at a fungicide application before these rains come, because I know with these rains, whatever is already in my field will spread further. If the weather forecast says, well, sunshine for the next five days, I would wait. Because if you spray an application, a fungicide too early, what happens is the plant will grow, first of all. So you will have plant areas that haven't been sprayed. And secondly, um, fungicides, I mean, they, they don't stick on the leaf surface forever and are effective. They lose their efficacy after maybe two to three weeks, right? So the better you are at timing your application just before you may have an infection, the longer you have protection. So these are sort of the two components that make it more difficult to decide when to spray the application. One tool Sabina's colleagues developed to help farmers with Ascochyta and Mycosphorella and P is a fungicide decision support checklist. So this is not a, to be mixed up with disease forecasting system. It's really more a guide to help farmers to make a decision on whether an intervention with a fungicide is warranted or not. And so it, it sort of is a stepwise process um, where you're guided through assessing the risk potential, starting off with, okay, if you walk into your field, do you see lesions or not? What does your canopy look like? What is the crop history? What is 
the weather forecast, and then sort of for each of these answers, um, you get points. And then if you're above a certain threshold, the system tells you, okay, um, based on your answers, you seem to be at high risk. Fungicide intervention may be warranted, or it tells you where you're below this risk. No intervention necessary at this point, but you are advised to sort of go back and go through this um, risk assessment again within a certain period of time. I think it's um, really to help growers look at the important factors, as we just discussed here, um, to determine, okay, what is the risk potential here right now? If you'd like access to that fungicide decision support checklist, we'll put a link in the show notes for you. Water is obviously the biggest factor that will impact the growth and spread of these fungal diseases. It splashes the spores from plant to plant to spread them and helps the spores germinate. The other obvious factor is crop rotation. The pathogen overwinters in plant residues, so if you come back with a host again the next year, you're likely to have a problem. I asked Sabina, though, what are the other factors that might make a farm more susceptible to these foliar diseases? So another source of inoculum can be infected seeds. So a lot of farmers obviously retain some of their seeds. I assume that's the same in the, in the US, retain some of their seed for the next year. So you, you definitely want to make sure that um, whatever you have harvested is clean and doesn't have disease. Now, it depends a little bit, and that's um, why I said sort of not every fungus is the same. It depends a little bit on the, the fungus um, how important that is. So, for example, for the anthracnose pathogen, it doesn't seem to be very important. So even if you have seed where there is a fair amount of anthracnose infection, as long as the seed has good viability, it's probably okay. With the ascochyta blights, it's a, a little bit of a different story. So the highest tolerance probably is in the P ascochyta blight pathogen. Um, that's where we say probably up to 10% seed infection is okay. Lentil is somewhere in the middle, between 25 to 5% of seed infection is okay. And um, the, the pathogen we are most concerned about when it comes to seed infection is, is really the chickpea ascochyta blight, because that's a, a really, really virulent pathogen that spreads like a wildfire. And um, here in Saskatchewan, um, you have to have well below 1% seed infection to even get crop insurance. As Sabina looks ahead into the future, one of the issues she's concerned about is mounting fungicide insensitivity. I think a big issue that sort of seems to be creeping up on us is fungicide insensitivity. Here in Saskatchewan, um, many of the fungicides that are, have, are sold have uh, strobilurin in them. So that's a particular class of fungicides, and they are very prone to result in, in insensitivity in these pathogen populations. And so we, we've seen it 15 years ago in chickpea ascochyta blight developing very, very quickly because fungicides are used a lot in that disease. As I said, it's a sort of a very virulent pathogen. We are now seeing it creeping up in the anthracnose pathogen in lentil. And so that's sort of something that is definitely on the radar of the plant pathologists here in the province, because we so heavily rely on, on this group of fungicides. Thank you so much to Dr. Sabina Benitza for this valuable information about foliar disease management in pulses. Thanks also to Dale Rizula for introducing us to pulse crop production in Saskatchewan and in Canada more generally. 
Really appreciate you both being a part of the Growing Pulse Crops podcast. We have a lot more great information coming your way throughout the 2020 growing season. Please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend who's also interested in growing pulses. You can find all of the episodes on any podcast player and at www.growingpulsecrops.com. This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the North Central IPM Center. We're releasing two of these every month throughout the growing season, so we look forward to bringing you your next episode very soon.